Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, July 17th. We begin the week with news of the culture war being declared on the institution of the United States government that fights our real wars. As many of you have heard in the headlines, a version of the annual Defense Authorization Act has passed the Republican House of Representatives with culture war rounds being fired in multiple directions. The one getting the most attention is a provision banning the military from paying for the travel expenses of troops seeking an abortion to a legal state, like if they're stationed in Texas, President Biden wants their travel expenses paid to their home state, for example, to get that medical care. The House on Friday said no. But that's not all. You know how Republicans have made a centerpiece of their recent politics, banning gender transition surgery for minors because minors are too immature to make that choice, they say. Well, in the defense authorization bill, they want to ban the adults in the military from having transition transition surgeries or even hormone treatments covered by their health insurance. Adults who have enlisted voluntarily to serve their country and may have been prohibited in their state from getting the transition surgery they may have wanted in high school. And, you know, in the military, your health insurance is the military system. That health insurance could not cover those procedures. Stop and we're not done paper. yet. They, the defense authorization bill as passed by the House would eliminate many diversity and inclusion programs and limit what flags may be flown at military bases in a new way, a move that's apparently aimed at banning the pride flag specifically from being displayed. And on diversity, as described by the AP, it would prevent the Defense Department from requiring participation in race-based training for hiring, promotions, or retention. Here is the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, advocating for these provisions. Stop using taxpayer money to do their own wokeism. A military cannot defend themselves if you train them in woke. We don't want Disneyland to train our military. We want our men and women in the military to have every defense possible. And that's what our bill does. Speaker McCarthy there and attacking the military, of all things, for being too woke is a common Republican refrain now. Presidential hopeful and former Trump U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley recently, and we played this clip on the show, decried in a campaign speech that the military trains recruits on how to respect their colleagues' gender pronouns. And before we bring in our guest, Richard Haas, to talk about this and a number of other things, I want to replay a moment from the show last month with the Secretary of the Army, Christine Warmoth. She was our guest, and I asked Secretary Warmoth about Nikki Haley's objection to gender pronoun training and, in general, about Republicans complaining the Army has become too woke. Here's what the Secretary of the Army told me. First of all, I would say we are a ready army, not a woke army. Uh, but we, you know, what we focus on is we do bring young Americans from all over the country, from all sorts of backgrounds, from all sorts of demographics demographics and ethnicities. So we do bring them together and focus on building cohesive teams. We focus on making sure that our soldiers respect each other and respect themselves. Uh, We want to welcome, you know, any person, any able-bodied person who is qualified to serve in the United States Army 
whether they are um, straight or LGBTQ, uh, you know, if you're able and fit to serve, we want to welcome you. And we do have training that focuses on making sure that people respect each other. And I think that makes us stronger as an army. And that includes respecting people's chosen pronouns? Yes. I mean, you know, I would say we, we spend probably a, an hour on that kind of training and we spend, you know, 200 hours on rifle marksmanship and basic combat training. Um, but uh, we are really focused on building cohesive teams and showing people respect. Secretary of the Army, Christine Warmoth, on this show last month. With us now, Richard Haas, who stepped down at the end of last month after 20 years as president of the Council on Foreign Relations think tank. He's been in the news for telling the New York Times upon his departure that the unraveling of the American political system means that for the first time in his life, the internal threat has surpassed the external threat. Instead of being the most reliable anchor in a volatile world, Haas told the Times, the United States has become the most profound source of instability and an uncertain exemplar of democracy. He also has a book that came out this year called The Bill of Obligations, Ten Habits of Good Citizens. He also writes a weekly Substack newsletter called Home and Away. We will go down his list of the 10-point Bill of Obligations he thinks should sit aside the 10 points in the Bill of Rights. And we'll invite you listeners to suggest one as well. And we'll talk about some news of the day, including the culture wars intersecting with the actual wars the military is there to fight. Richard, belated congratulations on the book and your 20 years at the Council on Foreign Relations or at the helm of it. We always appreciate when you come on this show. Welcome back to WNYC. Well, thank you, Brian, for the generous uh, introduction, and it's good to be back with you, sir. Can I dive right into this defense authorization bill story and ask if it's an example of the concerns you were expressing to the Times about the internal threat surpassing the external one? Well, obviously, you know, here's a time where the United States potentially faces conflicts in three geographies. In Europe, we've got what's going on with Russia and in the Indo-Pacific and Asia with China and the Middle East, conceivably with Iran. Plus, we've got thousands of troops in the Middle East uh, taking on terrorists and I could go on and on. We've got enough on our hands. We've got to fight real wars and to inject this kind of domestic politics. Uh, we've come a long, long ways, and this ain't progress, uh, from when politics stopped at the, at the water's, uh, water's edge. So this is, uh, yeah, this is just a lack of seriousness. It's a lack of responsibility on the part of the uh, Republicans in, in the House, and they ought to be called out on it. And speaking about your book, you told the Times that your concerns are not just about American democracy, but our internal situation has become a national security threat, too, which we usually think about in terms of foreign affairs. Can you lay out how you mean that? Like if Congress is arguing over abortion rights and LGBTQ rights, et cetera, does that make us more vulnerable in some way to another 9-11 or anything else we think of explicitly as national security? In and of itself, only at the the margins. It does potentially detract from military readiness. As you just heard from the Secretary of the Army, you replayed your interview, it detracts from potentially unit cohesion. It may make it harder to uh, to retain uh, female uh, troops. So all of those are negatives at a time. Uh, we, we simply don't don't need such distractions. But but the, the other aspects of our domestic division are, are more serious, uh, I would say, in terms of national 
security, it obviously makes it very difficult for us to be uh, to set an example for democracies elsewhere. Just the opposite, we're actually used uh, as, by the authoritarian regimes as an example or as, as evidence of why they are right not to be democratic. It makes us much less reliable and dependable. So all of our friends are, are thinking twice about putting their security eggs in, in our basket. If we are divided at home, we may not have the resources we need in order to, to devote to, to national security. We won't have the bandwidth that it requires. And even worse, imagine if January 6th is not a one-off, but becomes part of a pattern where we have a degree of politically inspired domestic violence then we're certainly not going to have the cohesion or the focus we're going to need to play a large role in the world. And Brian, when you look at the last 75 years, they turned out pretty well by any and every historical measure. And one of the principal reasons that the last 75 years were a time of extraordinary accomplishment in the world was the United States was willing and able to play an outsized role. But if we have this sort of domestic division, uh, we're simply not going to have the, either the ability or the willingness to play that role. And a world in which the United States pulls back is going to be a far messier world, which again will find its way to our shores. So your valedictory book as you leave the Council on Foreign Relations Presidency is The Bill of Obligations, 10 Habits of Good Citizens. And I'm just going to list the 10 right now. And as we discuss them, um, we'll be taking listener calls and getting them ready to say what they might put on a Bill of Obligations to accompany our Bill of Rights. Your 10 are be informed, get involved, stay open to compromise, remain civil, reject violence, value norms, promote the common good, respect government service, support the teaching of civics, and put country first. And Richard, we'll get into a few of those in some detail, but why that frame overall of a Bill of Obligations? Well, the simple reason is that citizenship has got to be a balance of rights and obligations. Don't get me wrong, Brian. I hope none of the listeners gets me wrong. Rights are central to the American experiment, to the American experience. Uh, the Bill of Rights were essential in order to gain ratification of the Constitution. People at the time, some were worried that we were at, in the aftermath of the wake of the failure of the Articles of Confederation. This new proposed Constitution, Constitution 2.0, if you will, was creating a strong federal government with a meaningful executive branch. And there were those like Patrick Henry and others who were worried that it was too strong. We had just fought one tyranny. Uh, in, the, in the name of uh, Great Britain, we didn't want to create a homegrown one. So we needed to build up protections. And a lot of American history can be understood as the effort to make good on rights, to narrow the gap between our rights and our reality, what Abraham Lincoln famously described as uh, our unfinished work. And I would argue we've made a lot of progress, but the work still remains unfinished. Uh, my What led to the book was the thought that even if somehow, though, we could finish this work, if there were no longer a gap between the, our principles and our reality when it came to rights, that even then, even then, American democracy would not be guaranteed or assured. I mean, think about it. Rights inevitably come into conflict with one another. You mentioned abortion in the context of the defense bill. So how does one deal with the fact of the, the rights of a mother or a woman to choose versus the rights of the unborn? Well, we talk about the Second Amendment. 
uh, as some interpret it. What about the rights of those who want to acquire guns of this or that variety versus those who have a right to public safety? And we saw the battles during the pandemic about rights to not get vaccinated or rights not to wear a uh, mask versus, again, rights of public safety. How do you navigate those? How do you how do you deal with those without it spilling over even to at a minimum into gridlock or worse yet into violence? And that's what led me to introduce the idea of obligations that uh, somehow along the way, and it's an interesting conversation, for lots of cultural reasons, we seem to have lost this notion of uh, what we owe to one another, what you would say you and I owe to one another, what each of us owes to the government and to the, the country. And it all, it all became about what's owed to us. And if all of us only focus on what's owed to ourselves, uh, we will not work as a society. We certainly won't be a uh, community. So this is not a book that's against rights. It simply says we've got to imagine citizenship as a two-sided coin. And one side is rights, but the other side is obligations. And we've got to flesh out those those obligations. Uh, and that's got to become part of uh, when we teach citizenship, whether it's in schools or outside of schools, this now has to be uh, an equal part of the conversation. And these are mostly citizenship type things. Again, I'll read them really fast. Be informed, get involved, stay open to compromise, remain civil, reject violence, value norms, promote the common good, respect government service, support the teaching of civics, and put country first. Is there one you would like to pick out from that list to talk about in a little more detail? A little bit like asking me to choose uh, among my children, but I will do it. (laughs) I will do it at the risk of heavy therapy bills. The... uh, I would say uh, probably the ninth one, which is the teaching of civics. This is a country that uh, was founded on an idea. And we just shouldn't assume that these ideas are what? That when we're born, we have them. They've got to be taught. But somewhere along the way, we stop stop teaching them. And I worry about that. I worry that uh, you can graduate from most of our colleges and universities. And even though the courses are offered, they're not required. So you can get a degree from virtually anywhere and never having read the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence or the Federalist Papers or understanding uh, the federal system or, or anything uh, else. Same thing opposed, uh, Same thing uh, can be said about many of our middle schools and high schools. So, you know, in principle, we would never think of graduating someone who couldn't function with a computer or read or, or write or, or, or do math. Why is it somehow less important that we're not preparing uh, people in this country for citizenship? Why is preserving our democracy any less uh, important? So, yeah, if there were one thing I could do, and it's something I am going to do in my post-Council on Foreign Relations life, is devote a, 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 a portion of my calories, of my, of my time, to promoting civics education, again, in, in particularly in high schools, and in, in, in colleges and, and universities, I, I think it's essential. Uh, you know, here we are, Brian, we're three years away now from the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And I'd like to think that, you know, we're going to celebrate this uh, 50 years from now and 100 years from now and so forth. But I don't take it for granted. And so, you know, my purpose is not to be pessimistic or defeatist. But I also don't think we have the luxury to be sanguine. Uh, and that's the reason I wrote this book was to start a national conversation, the kind of conversation you and I are having right right now. 
And if there were one thing I could do, it would be to teach civics in our in our schools to require that students took it because that could subsume a lot of the other obligations. And what we could do is essentially teach obligations alongside rights, alongside history. And I think that would give Americans the foundation they need in order to uh, to be active, informed citizens. I'm going to take a phone call right now uh, from a listener who represents many listeners in that in the invitation that we gave for the listeners to call in and say what would be uh, on their bill of obligations for Americans or name one thing, there is one that's breaking out as the overwhelming one that people who are calling and texting us are mentioning. Do you want to take a guess at what that is? No, but I'm fascinated because I've been having conversations about this book now for some five or six months, and uh, I haven't heard anything that I said, wow, I wish I'd included that. Indeed, most people said, yeah, your 10 pretty well covers it. So I'm really fascinated to learn and to hear what people have to say. All right. I'm going to let Jim in Ocean County, New Jersey, represent. Jim, you're on WNYC. Hi. Oh, hi. Great. Thank you, Brian and uh, and uh, Mr. Haas. The Greeks had a word for people who were eligible to vote and didn't. Idiot. And I think it's great to teach civics, but I, what I would espouse would be compulsory voting, mm-hmm. something along the lines of what they have in Australia. If you don't vote, there's a minimal fine, but it would motivate people to educate themselves. It's all well and fine, but all, you hear people even admit at the last minute, oh, gee, I don't know enough. Or we have these long campaigns, and people are inured to the, anything, and uh, I don't blame them. They're ridiculously long, and there's a lot of money. But uh, and it would be compulsory for all elections, primaries. I grew up in Hudson County, where there was one party, the Democratic Party, but there were two very active factions. And you talk about vandalism, people tearing down signs, posters on polls. That happened like every night for weeks before an election in a primary, because the primary determined who was running in the general election. Jim, let me me leave it there for time, but but that's very clear. And Richard, that's the number one that we're hearing in various forms of expression. Jim put it his way. Other people are putting it slightly differently. But from callers and people texting us uh, on the Bill of Obligations, they would put vote. Well, the second obligation is to be involved. And in the chapter on that, I have a, a discussion of some length on just this on the Australian uh, model of required uh, voting. And as Jim correctly pointed out, you've got to go to the polling station. You can foul your ballot, but essentially if you don't show up at the polling station, you get you get fine. My own view after talking to people and thinking about it is I didn't think this would, uh, this would fly here. Americans don't do well with uh, mandates of this sort. Indeed, when it came to both voting and public service, I think these things ought to be uh, encouraged. So I didn't think calling for man mandated or required voting would go anywhere. Republicans in particular would uh, would resist it. So what I wanted to do was incentivize uh, voting to make it easier to vote, but also through civics education and the rest would be to show to Americans how their vote really can count and why the consequences or of different outcomes are meaningful for their lives and for the uh, for the, the, the country's future. 
So again, I don't, we're not arguing where we want to go, which is higher voting. Indeed, I, I was shocked that in the midterms this November, despite the stakes, less than half the eligible voters in the United States bothered to vote. And there's all sorts of reasons people give why they, they, they don't vote. But I'm hoping that through civics education and the like, uh, we can get more Americans uh, to see the value of voting. And by the way, even a, uh, Brian, even a small increase in the number of Americans to vote could have a tremendous political impact. If you think about the recent races that determined that Republicans control the Congress, a half dozen districts in New York might have been enough to swing the, different, the dif difference. And the number of votes was small or recent presidential elections. Usually it's two or three states, less than 100,000 votes would, uh, would have you know, elected, uh, brought about different presidents. So we don't need a revolution uh, in voter participate, participation. We just need a, a small increase. So rather than having, I think, a distracting debate about making voting mandatory, what I want to do is have voting, have voting encouraged. And I think that can be done. And I think it would have a, a, a meaningful difference. Richard Haas, he stepped down after 20 years as president of the Council on Foreign Relations on June 30th. He also has this new book that came out this year called The Bill of Obligations, 10 Habits of Good Citizens. You can also keep up with his thinking if you're interested in Richard Haas on his weekly Substack newsletter called Home and Away. Home and Away. Richard, thank you for continuing to come on with us. We really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, my friend. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.